I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. One week ago, today, the world's most famous family was set, seemingly, for a reckoning like never before. In a devastating interview, a visibly pregnant Duchess of Sussex told Oprah Winfrey her royal life in London left her suicidal. I went to the institution and I said that I needed to go somewhere to get help. I said that I've never felt this way before and I need to go somewhere. And I was told that I couldn't, that it wouldn't be good for the institution. Prince Harry and his partner Meghan Markle had exposed the royal family as uncaring, nasty, and even racist. And the clips from their interview with Oprah Winfrey, well, I don't know if you care at all about the royals, but you still heard the clips. In those months when I was pregnant, all around this same time, so we have in tandem the conversation of, he won't be given security, he's not gonna be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. And what we wondered was, would this actually change anything for the role of the monarchy in the Commonwealth, for its place here in Canada, for the future of the royal family itself? Because, look, racist comments about the skin tone of an unborn child are obviously unacceptable. But this is also a family that has presided over a nation that has colonized entire countries and continents full of black, brown, and indigenous people. So I think it's fair to wonder if this, a primetime interview with Oprah, will actually be the straw that broke the camel's back. It's been more than a week since the Oprah interview went viral. What's changed for the royal family? What hasn't? What happens next? And should we even care? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Patricia Treble is one of the foremost experts on the royal family in Canada. She writes about them for Maclean's. Hello, Patricia. Hello, Jordan. As somebody who covers this family for a career, what was your first thought as you watched that interview? with Harry and Meghan and Oprah. That it was the most riveting television I'd seen in a long time. And I'm going to be honest, during this pandemic, I've seen a lot of television. I thought it was it, it was two hours that was captivating. Um, you know, as they as they talked about as they as they explained their story, like what happened to them in the last four years. Um, and, you know, and as Oprah was, you know, asking them more and more questions, it was, it just kept building and building and building. And every time I, ca- I thought, well, oh, that's a huge bombshell. There, another one would come along, you know, they would tease another one coming along. And, you know, I, I got out to the end of it and I just thought, oh my goodness, this is massive. In the days directly following that interview, there was a ton of talk about what this would mean 
for the royal family going forward for places like Canada's relationship with the royal family. And, you know, what I said then is like, let's wait a week and see if any of this sticks. Um, so where are we? What's happened in the week since? In the immediate aftermath, there was obviously there was this overwhelming reaction, you know, sympathy for the couple um, and really uh, an amazing amount of criticism launched at the royal family, at Harry's family, at the institution, at the monarchy, at the Canadian crown and stuff like that. And, and that was to be expected, of course. It was it was such an incredible interview. But then what's happened now, you know, more than a week later, is I think people are looking at the interview in a calmer light, I guess, but also a more analytical light um, that we're looking at, you know, what was said, what wasn't said, and putting things in context. And there's also been a certain amount of, of fact-checking. I mean, I did some in the immediate aftermath. I mean, I've been fact-checking for 20 years. I, It's in my DNA now. Um, but there's been some of that. And and I think the reaction has been, I think has been is more balanced now, is more nuanced. Um, and so as things kind of unfold, I think the immediate sense that this might have been a cataclysmic um, event for the royal family, I think, has been tempered a bit. Um, but it clearly is is a huge event for the royal family. Maybe for people uh, like me who pay, uh, at best, kind of a casual attention uh, to royal family stuff, can you explain why this interview was such a huge deal? Because, again, I'm watching it um, and seeing the coverage of it. And, you know, the idea that... The older folks in the royal family might be a tad racist. The knowledge that Meghan had some mental health struggles and struggled to cope with the the treatment by the press and that the relationship went bad and they left. Like, none of that was really news to me. I kind of assumed that stuff. So I didn't, I guess I didn't expect it to be that big uh, a bombshell. Why was that? I think it's two things. I think it's first the fact that royals really rarely give these sorts of interviews. I mean, it's, it's incredibly rare because they want to preserve in many ways the mystique of, of the monarchy. But at the second time, it was two people very openly talking about the inner workings of the, the most famous family in the world and the most famous institution of the world, which is the monarchy. Um, and I think when, you know, when people around the world talk about the queen and the monarchy, they're only talking about one. They're talking about Queen Elizabeth II, and they're talking about the monarchy, which is the British monarchy, the Canadian monarchy. There's, she's the queen of head of state of uh, sixteen realms, and that's what made it a bombshell. And also what they were saying, because I mean, what they were giving was allegations of, of racism by Harry's family. I mean, somebody within them talking about, uh, making racist comments about the the color of Archie's skin before he was born. Um, it was Harry, who has obviously grown up in the royal family, talking about uh, his brother and his father being trapped within the monarchy with no way out. And it was, and it was also Meghan talking very openly about the fact that when she was pregnant with Archie, you know, she had suicidal thoughts, um, which is just heartbreaking. Um, you know, the fact that she was she was trying to get help and didn't quite know where to go. And and people were saying, well, you know, you really shouldn't get help. And, and this is what she was saying. And and you can't help but be sympathetic to them. And I think that's what it was. It was that it was very much 
uh, them versus the institution. And that's what really came out in that story, in, in that interview. But what chance do they have, really, going up against an institution like that? Not to necessarily pit them against uh, the royal family on their own, but, you know, the coverage of it seemed to imply that this interview might seriously damage the monarchy in a permanent way. And, and what kind of chance is there of that actually happening? Oh, I think there is a good chance. I mean, look, racism is a bombshell. It is enormously damaging to the royal family. Um, any whiff of racism, any taint of racism to any per- person or institution today, especially one with a history of empire, a history of colonialism, um, it, I, I think it's going to stick. I mean, you might also when you're talking about, you know, Britain's rep- reputation abroad, the royal family is the selling point. I mean, when the royal family goes on these tours abroad, they're representing often Britain um, and they attract huge amounts of coverage. I mean, Britain talks of them as, you know, the ultimate tourist point. If you're viewed as racist, then where do you go from there? You're tainted. Um, And also, you've got the royal families standing within the Commonwealth, where, you know, large percentage of the overall population of the Commonwealth are people of color. Um, So they're looking at this and they're saying, well, if these are allegations, uh, claims by Harry and Meghan, against Harry's family, then why do we want to be associated with these people? And and I think one of the things that, you know, for me kind of always looking at everything, realizing everything is a shade of gray, everything has nuance. I wished Oprah had asked the follow-up questions, had asked, you know, Harry didn't want to talk about it, but if you're going to lay that sort of throw a bomb over the the gates at Buckingham Palace, then I think you you do have a duty to explain it. You know, what was the context? Who was the person? Did he actually tell that person, you know, I think what you said was racist. Um, and who was that person? I mean, we know now that it wasn't uh, the Queen or Prince Philip. Oprah said that she was told it wasn't. She doesn't know who it is. But is it a member of Harry's immediate family? And which has obviously implications because his father is going to be king, his brother is going to be king. Was it a member of the larger, the queen's family? So his aunts and uncles and cousins. Or was it a member of the extended royal family, which is, you know, goes all the way down to the grandchildren of the queen's cousin, Princess Alexandra of Kent, you know, 16th in line to throne. You know, you've obviously got the shading. I mean, we all have... Big, you know, we all have families and we all know that I am not represented by what my cousin does. But I think in this case, because the royal family is so intrinsically part of 16 countries, 16 realms, you need to know that sort of detail. And and I think the fact that that was not asked by Oprah in that two hours, she might have very well have asked it in the entire interview, but it didn't show on air. I mean, I think that that's a that just, it just, it's left it hanging. I'm glad you mentioned the Commonwealth because we're going to talk about how the monarchy survives or doesn't in many of these places. I think uh, Barbados has already announced uh, its intention to lose the monarchy. And, you know, I've seen the usual uh, folks in Canada who, who would always like to get rid of the monarchy talk about this stuff, but I've also seen uh, other folks who normally wouldn't give a crap uh, saying that this was too far. So first, 
even if we wanted to um, get rid of the monarchy, how would that work in Canada? And then do you think we will? So to back up, I think the monarchy, the the crown in Canada, and, and this is what we're talking, we're talking about the institution of the crown. Um, and the queen is the, is the, you know, physical manifestation of the state. And whether the Maple Leaf Crown has always been, you know, a perennial story. Um, and of course, we've got the scandal involving Julie Payette, um, who was forced to resign after a report said that she fostered a culture of bullying and harassment at Rideau Hall. So you've already got that sort of damage built in. Uh, public opinion polls are falling. But at the same time, you need to have, I think, three things. You need to have political will. And I, right now, is it there? I don't think so. I think we've got our hands full. Will it come after the inevitable, the Queen's death? Perhaps. It depends on who, who is the Prime Minister and how much that they want to, ex- uh, how much energy and effort they want to expend. But then you have two other things. You have to figure out how to replace it and with what? What are you going to replace it with? The how is, of course, the Constitution. Um, this would need unanimous consent. All of Parliament, House of Commons and Senate, all provinces. Ontario, big Ontario, all the way down to tiny little Prince Edward Island. Everyone has to line up. Once you start opening up the Constitution, is every province going to then want to to say, well, while we're doing that, let's also tweak at this, let's also tweak at that, likely. The other question is, now, you might be able to find a workaround. You know, we let's face it, we've got a governor general. Um, you might be able to find a workaround, but there's certain things that the queen, that the monarch does that you can't get a workaround. The monarch appoints the governor general. So at some point, if you need a new governor general, you've got to go to the monarch. The other question is, what are you going to have? And what are you going to replace it with? And the instant reaction is always the prime minister. The prime minister will just assume all those powers. Our prime minister is already the most, arguably the most powerful political head of government in the in the G7. Do we want to give him that much more power? I think that that's a question that we have to start thinking about. Are we going to replace it with an elected official? Well, then what sort of election? Are they going to be politicians? Are they going to be former politicians? So then are you going to have... A governor, in a governor general's election, or a, you know, head of state, a, pre, a presidential election, in which you have political parties involved. Um, you know, people talk about the Irish situation where they don't—they've kind of divorced the election of the president from politics. But that's a very small, homogeneous population. And I think the one thing we know about this country is it's very regional. Um, it's very diverse, and I don't think that we're going to have that here. And also, is that person then going to rival the prime minister? Again, you need the political will. I don't know how much will there is to do this right now. Um, I think we've got so many other issues that I think it's going to be what we have now, which is a bit of neglect. And I think that's actually does a disservice to the institution that is the crown in Canada, because the crown in Canada, I think, is, is just not understood. And... I would love to have civics back, you know, because people don't people don't understand the roles of the prime minister, the roles of the, of the Supreme Court and stuff like that in relation to the crown, in relation to all the provinces um, and how different Canada is to how the system is set up in Britain, how the system is set up in Barbados, for example, uh, which does, as you said, look like 
towards the end of this year. Um, they'll be, you know, leaving the monarch as head of state. They'll still remain within the Commonwealth. They've made that clear. And as, as the Queen has always said, it's up to each individual country. If you want to do it, then she's fine with it. She will absolutely sign off on this. But it has to be something that the entire country wants. You're saying it's not as easy as just uh, slapping Celine Dion on the money instead. <laughs> Here's the thing. This country, if if you start getting societal and political will turning in one direction, we saw this at the beginning of the pandemic. You can do an enormous amount very quickly in this country, but you have to have everything lined up. So, and I'm going to be honest, do you want Celine Dion? I was actually thinking more of the, you know, the Schitt's Creek sort of, you know, <laughs> presidency. That would be fun. Come on, the Levy family. Come on, you've got the dad and the son already lined up. How many more? See, we can't even agree on which celebrity to replace the monarchy with. So <laughs> it's going to be a non-starter. Um, especially, I would imagine, if you're talking about getting approval from all of the provinces at the same time because we've got a vast array of the political spectrum leading provinces across the country. And uh, somehow I can't see the provincial uh, legislatures of Ontario and Alberta voting to hand some of those powers over to the federal liberals. Well, I mean, this this has always been the curse, you know, for, for somebody who, who grew up in the constitutional quagmires, uh, you know, of the 80s and 90s, um, you know, I, I, I have some of the scars of that. Um, it's not easy, but if you have political will, if you have the societal will, then you can make the change. Um, the question is, will that, will that actually suffice? Um, and then there's the question about Quebec. You know, what is Quebec going to want? And I presume that every province is going to have their list of demands. Um, what are they going to want from it? I mean, right now, the governor general flips back and forth between a francophone and an anglophone. Will that be codified into a new head of state? I don't know. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada, within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. I had just one more question for you, but before I get to it, I now have to ask you, because I know everybody listening uh, wants me to ask you, you got to give me at least one of those things that nobody really understands about the Crown's role in Canadian politics. What are what's one of the most common misconceptions that people just don't know about unless they really get wonky? I think it's the fact, and somebody described it this way, that it is the fire extinguisher on the wall. And so, look, we've got the perfect example of what happened down south of the border when you've got somebody who will push and push and push against norms, who will push against conventions, who says, if it's not written down its law, then I can just do it. You know, we've, we've had that for the last four years. Yet we don't really have that in Canada. And the thing is about the, the crown is that it is the ultimate bulwark against that. Because if push comes to shove, if, if a politician, if a, if a government leader is doing something 
against the norms, against the laws, then it is the responsibility, it is the duty of the governor general, the lieutenant governors, you know, talking on advice for all their experts, and they would absolutely get advice to say, I'm sorry, you cannot do that because of this, 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 and this. It's not their business to be involved in politics. It's not their business to take sides, but they simply are responsible for the institution. And that's the reason why you have, when you have the state opening of parliament, the governor general, the lieutenant governors get the big fancy chair and the political leader gets the small little chair beside. They are temporary. The crown lives forever. And it's that bulwark. And so when you talk about what the advantage is, and it can be, it's almost implicit. When you look at the most liberal, I'm talking small L liberal, the most socioeconomically equal of countries, and there's always inequality, but the ones that are the most equal, the ones that are the most democratic, and there's rankings of them around the world. The one thing you'll notice about the top 10 is that the vast majority are monarchies. They're all monarchies. And that's because the monarchy provides is the top is, and, and it's, you know, the Swedish monarchy has absolutely no power. The power's completely been taken away from it. But that doesn't matter because politicians know you can, you can push, you can push your agenda so far and then there's a pushback. And I think that's one of those weird things that that an inherited position can actually bizarrely be the counteract against politicians. Um, because, of course, they don't have any political agenda. What their, what their role is, is their role is safeguarding the nation, is safeguarding the state, is leaving it to in a better state for the next generation. So what's next? Um, not necessarily maybe for Canada's future uh, with the royal family, but for the like long arc of this story. Is the next major event whatever happens when uh, the Queen eventually passes? I think that is probably the next major event. I mean, I think the event that we're all kind of dreading is that Philip has been in hospital for, uh, we're coming up on four weeks now, um, and shows he's 99. He'll be 100 in June. Uh, they weren't planning a big event. He's retired. He's made it clear he doesn't want a lot of fuss. He's not a guy who likes a lot of fuss. But they were. everyone was expected to gather, including Harry. Now, Megan, of course, is pregnant. She's expecting her second child around there, a girl. Um, so I it was doubtful she would be back in, in, in Britain in June. But they were all expected to gather. And now there's that sense of, mm, yes, it's the passing of the guard. Um, it's Philip, it's the queen. You're kind of looking at the calendars and making that tick. That's probably the biggest thing. I think if you talk more immediately, it's in the summertime, a statue of Diana that was commissioned by the two brothers, Prince William and Prince Harry, is expected to be unveiled in, in London. It's got delayed because of the pandemic, as everything everything has been. But that is going to be an incredibly awkward situation because, of course, the brothers really aren't talking to each other. The, you know, as Harry said, they're on different paths. Um, but Harry also just spent two hours talking to millions of people, criticizing the family, criticizing the institution for which William is devoting his life to you know, a life of public service. And so that's going to be a little awkward. But you know what? 
we've all had those awkward family gatherings. And you know what? You just do it. It's not about you. It's about somebody else. And you kind of suck it up. You put a smile on your face and you do it. And it also might be the it might be a cha- a turning point, you know. Maybe the turning point is when, you know, is when um, Harry and Meghan's daughter is born. But the ramifications, obviously, for the, the Sussexes, what are they going to go from here? Uh, they're trying to spin up their foundation, the Archwell Foundation. They've got deals with Netflix and Spotify. There's been one podcast, but really nothing else. And so where do they go from here? And there's this great quote in the Atlantic magazine, and it said, problem for Harry and Meghan is that their beef with the House of Windsor is currently the most interesting thing about them. And I think in many ways that is true. And it's up to them to now show the world what they can do, not just what they thought of their lives as royals. Patricia, thank you so much for taking the time to explain this to us, as wonky as it gets sometimes. Jordan, thank you. And as I always say to everyone, it's one of those topics that, you know, can start off very light and fluffy or it can start off, you know, quite serious or quite emotional. Yet when you peel through the layers of the royal onion, it impacts almost every part of not just, you know, not just Britain, but every part of Canada, whether you know it or not. And I think the thing is that most people don't. Patricia Treble of McLean's Magazine. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you haven't taken our survey yet, please do. We're going to send out those tote bags soon. I know you want one. You can also talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Tell me, please, how much you don't care about the royal family. I've never seen those tweets. You can also write to us via email, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. And as always, you can follow us, subscribe for free, whatever they happen to call it these days, in your favorite podcast player. That is Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify or Pocket Casts or Overcast. I could go on, but we're there. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16 year old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency.